welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast, where we now talk about NBA games again. I'm Joe Wolfon, and I'm joined remotely, as always, by my co-host Joseph Cacharo. What is going on? It yeah, we we can talk about basketball, like real basketball again, not like the 1984 West semifinals or some random shit like that. Like it's uh, we're talking about basketball in 2020. Playoffs start in two weeks. This is uh, it's pretty beautiful. Yeah, man. How you uh, how you feeling? Have you have you missed this feeling of just like permanent fatigue? <laughs> you know what? It's it's an exhilarating feeling. I'll say that. Um, you know the whole doing takeaways till like three in the morning, podcasting seven less than eight hours later on a Sunday morning. I love it. You know, wouldn't uh, wouldn't have it any other way. As as I told you via text message uh, this week, it's. We're really like Hyman Roth and uh, Michael Corleone right now. I'm like, this is the business we chose. Yeah, man, that was. Um, <laughs> she sent me that clip, and uh, I thought it was pretty apt. Yeah. But it works. It works culturally. Um, I think. It too. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, Godfather too, baby. Um, I think. Uh, I, I think in this episode, obviously, we'll we'll kind of go through and talk about our takeaways from some of the specific games and the teams that have played in the first couple of days of the restart. But I wanted to start maybe by taking kind of a big picture look at the league through what's it been now? It's been four days since the regular season officially restarted three yeah, days, yeah, three full days in the books, depending on when you listen to this Sunday, I guess could be four days. So yeah. Talk to me about any maybe big picture takeaways that you have the, the sort of quality of play, what it's felt like, watching these games and these fanless arenas, how you think the visuals and uh, the presentation has come across, how the league has sort of dealt with its messaging around social justice, anything in particular that you want to hit on? Yeah, a lot to unpack there. I mean, look, from a, from a quality of play standpoint, I think I think for the most part, we should be pleasantly surprised. Like there, there's been a couple duds and yeah, there, there's been times in almost every game or the, other than Rockets Mavs where the offense has maybe bogged down and looked a little stagnate or rusty or whatever the case but I think for the most part offenses league-wide are ahead of where I thought they'd be at this point uh it, it doesn't really seem to be honest like guys haven't played in months you know we talked a lot and you you brought up a good point about how given how long the shutdown was it's almost hard to even take what happened in the first 60 odd games and say it's the same season but one thing I've been surprised about is like for the most part a lot of these teams look the way they did four months ago you know it, it really almost does feel like they just picked up where everyone left off and that's kind of cool and then in terms of the visual presentation i think aesthetically the nba has done a pretty good job of of making this pretty solid for tv i'm not sold on the um look i like the fact that there's more space for the players on the baselines and out of bounds it's safer for them and i get that the nba is trying to explore with camera angles in these like newly available spots but at the same time not sure about this like courtside tracking camera that's going on. I don't know if you've noticed that in some of the games. I find it kind of disorienting. And I think, I think the, well, it's also like you just, a lot of the time, like you can't see what's going on. Yeah. Because like there are literally players in the way, like it's trying to track the play, but there are players in the way. So it's like, you can't actually see what's going on at the rim. You can't see anything that's going on on the weak side of the floor. Like, I'm not a fan. I think that the, the standard camera angle they have is perfect. Yeah. And all this gimmickry where they're just trying to tweak it and like show us these interesting angles and different ways of looking at the game. 
are pointless. Yeah. And I think too, it's like, the, I don't know if the NBA is trying to create this illusion of like, this is what it's like to sit courtside. But it's like, you're never, that, it's not, first of all, because you're still looking through a screen. And like you said, like the players are more in the way from a TV perspective than they would be if you were actually there in the flesh. Um, in terms of the virtual fans, uh, I think it's actually better than I assumed it would be. Like I, I thought it would look a lot worse or I don't know. It would, yeah, I think it's, it's fine. Uh, some teams have even gotten creative. Like the Pacers had, uh, like a, like almost like a virtual cutout of the lady, the crazy lady from that Pacers bull series that they showed in the last dance going nuts. You know, the Mavs put Dirk Nowitzki in there. And then there's also been some like funny ones. I think it was during the Clippers game that Kerry kills. No, what? Carrie during Kittle, the Nets game, yeah. Yeah, like actually was one of the virtual fans. Like there's been stuff like that where former players are like yesterday, Chris Paul's son. Yeah, Chris Bosh dropped yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So I think, I think honestly, for the most part, the, besides that courtside sideline camera angle, I think everything's gone well from an aesthetic standpoint. And then even in terms of game presentation itself, like with the, the fan noise, I thought like the pumping in crowd noise would be really terrible and cheesy. And what I've noticed is that it's actually they've actually done a pretty good job of like pumping it in at the right times, I feel like. So it doesn't feel like just this one endless kind of fake fan noise. Like even during Raptors Lakers last night, I thought the way they timed it was perfect. It never seemed too over the top. Um, it never felt like, oh, this is there, you know, through the whole game. So yeah, I think for the most part, all that has been probably better than I expected. And then to touch on um, what you mentioned about like the the collective action, the, the league and the players have taken, look you know, it's obviously symbolic in, in nature. And um, I think it's nice that the NBA, you know, has these messages on the jerseys. And I think it is a really powerful image, especially in these first few days to see teams, coaches and refs all kneeling in unison for the most part and and locking arms. Like I, I think it's a great gesture and, you know, just visually like it's it's symbolically powerful and I'm all for it, obviously. But I will say that um, what happened on Saturday with Jimmy Butler is a good example of why many, including myself, feel this is this is very performative on the league's behalf because, you know, it's it's one thing to be this quote unquote progressive league that's pro protest until there's a real protest. And, you know, whether people want to admit it or not, players wearing pre-approved messages that the NBA signed off on is not a form of protest. Again, it's a nice gesture, and I hope people are, you know, seeing something like say their names on the back of a jersey, maybe looking into that and then realizing what that's for. You know, Kyle Lowry yesterday with education, for like Black Lives Matter on on a lot of jerseys, like equality. All of these things obviously are great, but again, these are pre-approved messages that the league signed off on. And then you've got Jimmy Butler, who actually wants to step outside that line, who, you know, what he did technically, especially if he had held firm and said, I'm not changing, that would have been a protest because he was going against um, an agreed upon set of rules and also didn't want to do anything that radical. He wanted to wear a jersey with no name on it, still had his number on it, still easily identifiable on the TV or for the broadcast. Everyone knows what Jimmy Butler looks like. And it's simply because it was not a pre-approved NBA thing. Jimmy Butler, of course, wanted to wear it as a reminder that, um, you know, just because he's a professional athlete doesn't make him any different than any other black man in America uh, or anyone from that matter. So, yeah, I just think that as nice as the gestures have been and as symbolically powerful as they look, that 
it's hard not to view it as performative from the league's perspective when we all know that the reaction would be quite different and literally was quite different when a real protest pops up. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see what happens. Like, you know, Jimmy Butler said himself after Saturday, he ended up just going along with it because he knew his team needed him. It was the first game, whatever. But I don't know. What if by game six of the seeding games, the Heat really don't have much left to play for? They're locked in. And Jimmy Butler says, nope, this is what I want to do. And uh, like, you know, how's the league going to go that? Are they going to punish him? They're going to find him. He's obviously not going to play in that game. Like, but isn't that, isn't that kind of the issue? Like if you're talking about a situation where the Heat are locked into a playoff seat right. and Butler decides it doesn't matter, like, you know, so the stakes aren't there. And I think that's, that's one thing that's maybe been gnawing at me a bit. Like, first of all, corporate activism sucks. Yeah. And I think we can both agree that we, we saw where this was headed as soon as the NBA and NBPA came up with that list of pre-approved jersey messages where it was like... <sighs> I mean, I think you said it, like, it's that's not a real protest. Like, the, the NBA has already signed off on this, and it's not really... Like, that doesn't count as giving the players a voice. I know, like, the, the Players Association technically agreed to this with the league, but that doesn't mean that it represents every player or what they want to say, or, like, the message they want to put out there. And you're right, it is symbolic, and, I, like, would it have made a huge difference in the grand scheme of things if... Uh, the players had gotten to choose what they wanted to put on their jerseys. If Jimmy Butler was able to go with the blank jersey with, you know, no name on the back in the big picture, I mean, maybe not. But if the league actually wants to show that it stands behind its players and its players' uh, ability to speak out and speak their minds, then I don't know. To me, I feel like they've failed so far. And with the anthems, yes, it is a nice visual show of solidarity and I do think you know with kneeling like as much as it's a a a symbolic gesture I think you know kind of understanding the history there and how that act of protest started you know in Colin Kaepernick getting blackballed from the NFL for that you know essentially being his form of silent protest and also like the you know there's kind of a a tragic new significance behind that gesture now because of how Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd by kneeling on his neck. Like it's taken on a new kind of meaning, but why are they playing the anthems before these games at all? Like, this is what I don't understand. Like it never fully made sense to me, but especially now when there are like no fans and I mean, we, we talked about this actually a couple weeks ago off air, but like, to me, like you said that, that you feel like usually they do, at least during the playoffs, show the anthems on TV, I, right? On the broadcast? I but. think it's like it's like a, a bit of both. I think in the finals, they always show it because they've got the performers there. But I, I think in the playoffs, right. I remember, I, maybe I'm just thinking of it because when during Raptors games a lot, they show it just so they can show the crowd singing and how great it is. But I do feel like you definitely see the anthems in the NBA more in the playoffs than you do in the regular season when it's almost never on the broadcast. Yeah, so I mean, it's just it's just strange because uh, to me, like I, I rarely remember them broadcasting the anthem. I feel like it's not something they show, so it's mostly for the benefit of the fans in attendance. And now there are no fans in attendance, but they're still playing the anthems before the game, and like I I, I don't really see the point of playing them at all. Like given that they're going to play them, I obviously like you know stand behind the players and coaches' decision to all kneel in unison. Some players and coaches have opted out of that. I don't particularly think that's a huge deal, but 
I guess it's just back in, you know, when it, what, what was it, like 2016, when, when Kaepernick started doing it. I mean, that, that gesture, which he didn't, he didn't publicize, nope. right? It was like a journalist noticed that he was doing it and yeah. asked him about it. Uh, it was like the opposite of performative. And it cost him his job and his livelihood. And I think if the NBA had decided then, you know, that they wanted to support that gesture and support Colin Kaepernick. I mean, back then, like Adam Silver came out and said that essentially he expected the players to stand that that was a league policy. And it just, it, it falls a little bit flat for me just because of how safe it feels. And... I guess that's the thing I'm sort of trying to work through. Right, exactly. And that kind of goes with what I was saying too about the, you know, it's easy to, to come across as pro-protest when there's not really a protest happening. And it's hard to call this a protest when 99.9% of the league's players, coaches, and refs have essentially agreed to do this together. And, and there's no real fear of consequences. And I'm obviously there shouldn't be fear of consequences, but I'm just saying, yeah, it's it's just hard to see it as some sort of um, active protest when unlike Colin Kaepernick, no one is really putting anything on the line here. And there's not even the fear of that happening. And then the only guy who was seemingly willing to do something like that was Jimmy Butler. And again, you know, as is within his right, he decided it wasn't worth it for him and he wanted to be there with his team. That's fine. Again, I just think obviously Butler, uh, number one is worth monitoring because I would not be surprised if he tries again and, and we'll see what happens. But, um, yeah, the, M- the NBA still has some questions to answer there. And, you know, no one should be thinking that they have solved anything because they're just not punishing players for kneeling or, you know, have some messages on their jerseys. Right. And I want to be clear, like, it is not Jimmy Butler's responsibility. You know, like, I-, I-, I don't hold it against him that he decided it wasn't worth it, that he wanted to play, that he felt like his teammates needed him. So he went and changed his jersey. But I do think, like, in order for there to be stakes for like the players essentially to really put the screws to the league. It's like, it has to be something like a playoff game where somebody like a Jimmy Butler or like a LeBron comes out in like a Jersey without a pre-approved message on it, uh, or does something that, you know, cuts against uh, the NBA's sort of pre-approved plan for how they want their corporate brand of activism to look inside this bubble. And then the league has to make a decision, like, are we going to bar one of our biggest stars from playing in, like, a playoff game? Or are we actually going to concede and allow them to have a voice? And I don't know, maybe we'll get to that point and maybe we won't. But I just think, you know, rather than talking about, like, kneeling for the anthem or, like, the messages on the jerseys, I, I would rather talk about the kind of action ability, like, you know, LeBron's more than a vote initiative partnering with, I think it's eight cities now to use their sports arenas as voting stations for the upcoming election. Uh, or Drew Holiday, you know, donating the entirety of his salary from the bubble games, which I think is like over $5 million to uh, his charity fund that is going toward, you know, community initiatives and supporting Black-owned businesses. I think, like, that's where the focus should be. Uh, to me, is like the the actual actionability that we've seen from some of these players, because I think that is really laudable, and that's it's frankly the kind of thing that we haven't seen from the billionaire owner class. And I think you know I'm not trying to come down on the players here at all. I think that you know the people who should really be under the microscope right now are 
the owners and the league itself. Well said. Um, all right, so let's move on to basketball stuff. I think every team has played a game Correct. now in the bubble. And I guess we can just kind of bounce around and pick out some games or some particular teams that we have found interesting that we want to talk about. So I'll put it to you. Where do you want to start? Well, I say let's start with the Pelicans because they were involved in the first game. And also, you know, a lot of people took issue, I guess, strangely, with the fact that it seemed like the NBA really wanted Zion in the playoffs. And that's why they did this and blah, blah, blah. And, you know. Yo, can I? So I've heard that so it's ridiculous. much. I, I don't. I, <laughs> I don't really think that that's the case, right? Like, it Clearly seems not. like. Like so much of the the revenue that they are making up by playing these seeding games, like it's tied to the local TV deals as well as like the national TV deal. But I think on top of, you know, giving the, the eventual playoff teams a chance to sort of ramp up to the playoffs, because apparently the Players Association pushed back on the idea of going straight to the postseason. It's also allowing 22 of these teams to fulfill the 70 game threshold for their local uh, broadcast rights deals so I don't really understand why everybody has sort of just adopted this position that like the whole point was to get a Zion and the Pelicans yeah there. no listen do I think the league probably looked at it as an opportunity to further market Zion put him on TV know that that's where the some ratings were coming in absolutely they'd be foolish not to though uh, they're in the entertainment business but this notion yeah that they you know manufactured this in a way so that like if anything well, yeah, because, I mean, if they were manufacturing this just to get the Pelicans in, then, like, why are the Suns and Wizards right. in the bubble? Yeah, no, it, it's, look, it, they did this for very obvious business reasons, and a lot of it tied to TV, and Zion factors into that, but, again, it's, like, the people that believe that are the same people that think, like, the, it's a conspiracy and, like, the refs want the Lakers in and, and whatever. But, anyway, I digress. I think we should start with the Pelicans because, you know, there's a lot of hype. Coming in, they had the, by far the easiest remaining schedule. Everyone just kind of saw it as almost a foregone conclusion that they were going to have a good bubble performance. And uh, I don't know how, to, how you even say that. A bubble, a good bubble showing and that they'd end up in a plane with Memphis and we'd see what happens. But now you end up at a point where they, you know, really there are only two really tough games in the bubble. Utah and the Clippers, they blow a game against Utah that they really should have won. They get absolutely curb stomped by the Clippers for 48 minutes and uh and now their schedule is going to turn and get easy but it's not as simple as just saying okay well they can run the table now and get in like they if they go six and zero, and the Blazers just go four and three the Pelicans are done you know or or they no then they'd be tied I think with the Blazers and I don't know what it would come down to then we'd have to go by the winning percentage. it would come down to the Blazers percentage points so there, there you go so like if if the Blazers they're need, a game and a half back right yeah, now the, they, they're a game and a half back in the standings, but that's the equivalent of them being two games right. back because of the Blazers' yeah. advantage in the percentage points. So, you know, they, they probably get to go 6-0, and run the table, and hope that the Blazers stumble a little bit. Like, now we're at a point where, you know, already just a couple games in, even running the table might not be good enough for the Pelicans. And I don't even know if it's so much a disappointment because maybe people were putting a little too much in Pelican stock, but I definitely think the way they lost the two games was a disappointment in that uh, they blew a game and then just honestly looked disinterested in in you know what should be one of the biggest games of their season. 
Yeah, I mean, I did honestly expect them to, to drop these first two games. Like, I think I had them going 6-2, and two, but basically dropping the first two and then running the table from there because their schedule really does get quite soft from this point on. So I, I'm not, like, totally shocked. Obviously, the, the, the way that they lost the Clippers was a little bit disconcerting, and there are a couple specific things in that game against the Jazz that uh, would worry me as well. But I think... Like, the Blazers schedule from here on out is super tough. And I think one of the things maybe we'll see that's hard to gauge right now is, like, these schedules that look super tough on paper, are they going to stay super tough? Because the the teams that look like really daunting matchups, I mean, maybe some of those games are going to be happening when those teams are, like, resting players because they're already locked into a playoff seed. And you know, maybe the Blazers' schedule isn't going to wind up being as tough as it looks. Certainly, like, the Pelicans have, their margin for error has totally evaporated. So it'll be interesting to see how they play and, like, whether they, you know, have that kind of sense of desperation. But, you know, one thing that stood out to me in that game against the Jazz, especially with Derek Favors just looking a couple steps slow after the long layoff, is, like, their interior defense is non-existent. And, uh, you know, this is something, this is a conversation. I was, was going to say, get, get to the point of what you want to say here, because I know where you're going with this. Well, I just think, um, and I felt this way for a while, that what the Pelicans need is like a legit rim protecting center who can also stretch the floor. And there aren't a ton of those guys in the league, but I do think. I mean, so Miles Turner is a guy who I threw at you as like, I think this is a perfect guy to slot next to Zion. Um, because as much as, you know, people want to see the Pelicans downsize and play Zion at center, and as much as those kind of lineups are going to be really difficult to stop, Zion cannot play the five. Yeah, they're also not going to stop anyone else. And, you know, like Favors is a solid interior defender. I think he's had a, a pretty nice year. And if you look at the impact stats, he's had, you know, by far... Outside of Zion, actually, he's had, you know, by far the biggest impact on the Pelicans plus minus splits, but he also is a non-shooter. And so that leaves the Pelicans kind of trying to balance, you know, the offense versus the defense. And especially if Favors is going to, you know, look the way that he's looked in these first couple of games, he's not really providing them the kind of value that they need from him at the defensive end either. They, They have Jackson Hayes who like, profiles as a guy who's going to be a, a solid really athletic springy backline defender is he going to be a guy who can space the floor I mean maybe he'll start to work on his three-point shot and he can become that type of player but the the trade proposal that I threw at you and I think this has become really interesting in the last couple of days but uh, before the seeding game started I said Brandon Ingram for Miles Turner and TJ Warren who says no and during uh during that first like Pelicans Jazz game when Ingram was like absolutely going off and nobody on the Jazz could remotely hold him down, I sent you a text saying that we weren't going to be discussing that on the pod. But then Brandon Ingram goes ice cold in the second half of that game. The Pelicans' lack of interior defense gets totally exposed. And then TJ Warren goes and does what he did last night, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. But um, suddenly... That trade is maybe looking a little lopsided in the opposite direction. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I think it's a little different too because I know I've been a little, a, a lot more of a believer in what Brandon Ingram's done this season than you have been, um, pretty much all year. But 
I will say this. I think if you're looking at like how both players will excel, yeah, I, I don't think Zion is is ready to play the five um, exclusively defensively. And if you start looking into like Brandon Ingram's numbers and how he excels, I think Brandon Ingram is best suited to be kind of a small ball four. And if you're saying that the Pels need a rim protector, which I agree with, and you're and we're also saying okay, Brandon Ingram's best as a small ball four, but Zion can't play the five. Well, it's like unless you're going with like one of those guys at the three, uh, which you could do with Ingram and the Pelicans are are, gonna, are trying to do, but it just doesn't work. It's not optimal. So. I don't think it's as crazy as I did when you first first sent me that message. But I also think it's just way too early in this Pelicans tenure that like or what they're trying to do in this Pelicans plan for them to actually go down that route and I think they haven't seen enough of what Ingram and Zion look like together. I'm not saying they will figure it out, maybe they don't. And maybe the Pelicans do realize, you know, David Griffin's obviously a sharp friend of the show. David Griffin, obviously a sharp basketball mind. I'm sure he would figure that out at a certain point. Um, But I I do think it's interesting. And I do think it's one of those things that over the next year or two, it will look like you are kind of onto something here and ahead of the curve, because I do think you'll see people start to talk about that, particularly as expectations go up. You know, it's it's one thing right now when we're just talking about the Pelicans disappointing in the bubble and maybe not getting into play-in, but if they go into next year healthy and people expect this to be a 45 to 50 win six, seven seed, maybe better. And they go 39 and 43 or two years from now, people expect them to be a quasi contender and they go 43 and 39. You know that it's when the failure to live up to expectations start creeping in on these young teams. That's when I think you'll start to see the pressure of, um, Hey, do these guys really fit together? Is this the optimal use of Zion? And, And at that point, I think something like Ingram for a rim protector probably makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, look, I definitely don't expect that to happen for all the reasons you stated. Like, they're still so early in their development curve. Uh, and I think this group deserves a chance to see what it's capable of. And especially, I mean, Ingram's 22 years old and has had this massive breakout season. So I fully expect the Pelicans to max him out and not look to trade him, at least in the short term. I just think conceptually, you know, long term... I see, I see them utilizing Zion closer to the way the Bucks use Giannis. And the thing that really unlocked Giannis's full capabilities, I think, at both ends of the floor was the addition of Brooke Lopez. And I think, ultimately, Zion is going to need a Brooke Lopez alongside of him. And I, I just don't know. I mean, Ingram is a really interesting player. He does a lot of things extremely well. But... He also is a guy to me who plays better with the ball in his hands or is at least more comfortable playing with the ball in his hands. Uh, I don't think he's a particularly strong defender. And the kind of two-man chemistry between him and Zion hasn't totally been in evidence yet. And I realize it's super early. They've played, you know, 20 games together. So I don't want to rush to any judgments. But to me, like, I don't necessarily see that as a long-term fit. You mentioned TJ Warren. Can we just... Can we just go off on a, on a TJ Warren tangent here? Okay, look, because um, I, I wrote about this last late last night as part of my takeaways from Saturday night in the bubble. But I think I, I'm not saying anyone should have expected TJ Warren, who had never had more than 40 or average 20 in a season, to go off for 53. I'm not saying anyone should have saw that coming. And I'm not, you know, trying to overvalue him now. But I do think TJ Warren is a good example and a good case study of a guy that, like, 
had people been paying attention, and I don't mean paying attention like watching every Suns game. I just mean paying attention and actually like looking into the numbers a little bit. I think they would have seen that this was a guy that over the last few years has turned himself into a pretty solid NBA scorer that no one really wanted to give any credit to because he was on a bad Suns team. And we know how that goes. We've talked about it often, or, you know, everyone asks about whether uh, it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, well, someone has to score on a bad team. And, you know, him and Devin Booker are the only guys there, whatever. But that argument doesn't really hold up. I, I recall the phrase looter in a riot. Right. Yeah. Being thrown around. Yeah. But, but I don't believe that. Was, I thought I was saying that people were wondering. Like, I don't think I ever t- called TJ Warren. No, no, no. You said, you said we were going to find right. out this season right. whether TJ Warren was a looter in a riot. And we have found out. He's not. But but what I'm saying is like a lot of people dismiss guys like that because they simply look at it as, well, someone's got to score on a bad team. And it's like, but if a guy does it efficiently, that kind of runs completely counter to your argument. Because if anything, scoring efficiently while being somewhat of a volume shooter on a bad team, when there is less talent to take defensive attention away from you, is impressive. That's not something to scoff at. We're not talking about a guy who was scoring 19 points on 25 shots because there was no one else taking the shots. Like This was a guy who was doing it efficiently. This is a guy who now, over the last three years, is averaging 19 points on 57% true shooting. You know, As was on display last night against the Sixers, this is a guy who can score in a variety of ways from different spots on the floor. He can put the ball on the floor. He can catch and shoot. I think this year he's up to like 50, 44, 82 shooting uh, on 19 plus points per game. Again, you know, obviously you don't want TJ Warren to be your number one option uh, in a season. Probably, you know, best served if he's not even your number two option. But the point is, is that he is a solid NBA scorer. The numbers have indicated that for about three years now. And it was just way too easy for people to get jokes off because the guy's on a bad team. And 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 that's all I'd caution is even myself, yeah, I came into the season saying we were going to find out if he was that guy and then he's proven that he is. But I would just say to NBA viewers in general and fans that just because a guy's scoring on a bad team doesn't make it empty. Like look into the numbers a little bit. Look at how he's doing it. Look at the efficiency. And if all that stuff checks out and he's still doing that, in the NBA, chances are he's a pretty good scorer. And it's not it's not empty just because his team sucks. Yeah, let's revisit this conversation when Zach Levine gets traded to a good team. Well, yeah. But, <laughs> I don't know if, if... Has Zach Levine been that efficient, though? He has. Like, I think he's gotten to be a quite a good self-creator. Uh, there is a lot missing from his overall profile, you know, both as a playmaker and as a defender. But... I think the Pacers also deserve a lot of credit. And like the, the bulk of the credit, without a doubt, should go to TJ Warren. So yeah. I, I don't... Pump the brakes on your always um, wanting to praise the Pacers here, all right? No, but I think the Pacers, especially recently, do have a history of absorbing players from other teams and getting the best out of them defensively in particular. And this has been far and away the best defensive season of TJ Warren's career. And this is like far from the first time that we have seen a player on the Suns who was giving minimal effort at the defensive end, go to another, you know, more competitive team. And suddenly, I mean, I'm not going to call TJ Warren a world beater, but I think he's been an above average defender for his position this season, which would have been unthinkable even a couple of years ago. Um, I don't know whether to disparage the Suns or credit the Pacers. But I think you should, I think another, you should I mean, do I, both. Yeah. And, and the Suns, 
not only did they give him away for nothing, they forked over a really good draft pick to the Pacers just to offload TJ Warren this offseason. They gave up the 32nd pick in the draft, which is basically like a late first rounder in order to get off of TJ Warren. So yeah, I think they absolutely deserve to get dunked on here. And the Pacers deserve credit for, for taking him on as, I guess, what you might have called a, a, a reclamation project and helped put him in a position to have the kind of season that he's had. Yeah. Also, full credit to Miles Turner, who tweeted out last night uh, that he wants to know what cash considerations thinks of the deal, because that's what TJ Warren was traded for. Like the Pacers traded cash and recouped draft capital to take on TJ Warren, who, as I mentioned, is averaging over the last three years, 19 points on 57% true shooting and is set to make less than $13 million in both of the next two seasons. Like, he's on a team-friendly contract, um, was showing signs of, you know, improving as a pretty consistent, efficient, secondary tertiary scorer. And the Suns not only gave him away for nothing, but gave him away and then some. And, and the Pacers, you know, acquire this solid you know, still youngish, he's 26 player. And I just think that, you know, you mentioned you didn't know whether to disparage the Suns or credit the Pacers. I think you do both because I think this is another one of those countless examples we have of like, this is why Team X does what they do and Team Y does what they do. And this is why the Pacers have been able to remain competitive the last few years, despite, you know, trading a Paul George, losing an Oladipo to injury, because they seem to know how to build a good functioning roster. They seem to know how to evaluate and target talent. Um, as you mentioned, you know, pick up some reclamation projects and a team like the Suns just seems to not understand how to do any of that. And there's a reason why they haven't even won 30 games in a half decade. Yeah. And I like Warren is a guy also who has always been like a really good and crafty inside the arc scorer. Like he came into the league with this sort of old school game where he loves the mid range. He's got a great floater and he just didn't really have the three ball in his bag. And he goes from, you know, in uh, 2017-18, he shoots 22% from three on 1.4 attempts per game. Has this outrageous shooting jump last year where he jumps to shooting 43% on 4.2 attempts per game. And this year he's actually down in terms of both his volume and his accuracy, but he's still 39.8% from three on 3.2 attempts per game. So like a legitimate weapon from long range. And he's shooting 57.3% from two-point range. Like, for a wing player, that is unbelievable. So, I think, and, you know, he's, he's just become, like, a legitimately good player. Yeah. And, and again, the Suns had him under contract for less than $13 million a year for the next, technically for them, for three years, and they gave it away for nothing. And, not, look, I, I get that maybe a lot of people weren't buying what TJ Warren was selling last year. You know, I just went on the rant about guys maybe undervaluing guys who score on bad teams and maybe they thought his three-point shooting was an aberration but you can't tell me there wouldn't have been a team out there willing to give up something of value like even minimal value for tj warren as opposed to cash and also you have to forfeit the traffic like it, it yeah the suns used used that some space to then sign rubio which was a better fit for them sure but again it's it's not even that they got rid of tj warren it's that they got rid of him for nothing just a comical lack of basketball intuition there. Do you want to talk about the team that was on the other end of that TJ Warren beatdown last night? The Sixers, I mean, 
entered this bubble as I think what what we and a lot of other people considered one of, if not the most interesting team in the restart. And we've talked about this. Like we're we're not really sure necessarily that moving up to the five seed is what's going to be best for them. They've had a lot of success against the Celtics this year. And staying at number six allows them to stay out of Milwaukee's bracket and avoid playing them until the conference final. I mean, I personally don't think that they would beat Boston in a first round series. But, you know, looking at the big picture, if their goal is to just stay alive in the playoff picture as long as possible, I do think it's probably in their best interest to stay at six rather than moving up to five. But that said, I think given, I mean, Oladipo wound up playing. So that's one thing. But the Pacers are, you know, without DeMontis Sabonis, who's dealing with plantar fasciitis and has left the bubble. And it seems like he's just not going to play. So we kind of just expected the Sixers to overtake the Pacers. Brogdon, uh, they were Brogdon was out. T- right, Brogdon didn't play last night. Miles Turner um, was limited into foul trouble. Like the, the Pacers played with half of Miles Turner, no Sabonis, and no Brogdon, and still beat the Sixers. And in the process, they won the season series. So not only do they go a game up on the Sixers, but they have the tiebreaker in hand, which means the Sixers now have to make up two games on the Pacers in order to surpass them in the standings, which again is not necessarily in their best interest. But I just think it's notable after, after all this talk about the new starting lineup and Ben Simmons playing power forward and how, you know, shake Milton was going to be the answer to their problems. I mean, in the first quarter of their first game, shake Milton and Joel Embiid get in a shouting match. Milton, I think ends up with zero points. I think he took one field goal. And I'm not saying that's how it's going to be from this point on, but this it didn't look to me like a team that has figured its issues out, especially since, you know, I think the biggest issues for this team throughout the Joel Embiid era have been that they suck when he's not on the floor. And I think that was pretty well exemplified by the fact that he was a plus 21 in a game that they lost. In 34 minutes. And I, I, you know, to me, I expected like they, they get in Al Horford and it's like, okay, look, they've, they fixed their backup big man problem because even when those two guys were starting together, it was clear their minutes were going to be staggered and Horford was going to essentially be serving as the backup five, the guy that they just did not have last year and that proved their undoing in that series against the Raptors. And they still have this issue where when Embiid isn't out there, they can't win. They were minus 27 in 14 minutes without Joel Embiid against the Sabonis-less, Brogdon-less, half-Turner-less Pacers. What are you doing, Sixers? And what are we doing continually talking about the fact that like, wow, there's a contender lying within it. Like, yes, like there are basketball reasons, especially on the defensive end to look at that team and say a contender lies within. Again, I do not shy away from the fact I picked them as my preseason Eastern conference champion. But, um, and I put this in that takeaways post last night too. Like at what point do we just like, they lost that game to fall to what? 37 and 29, 39 and 27, whatever it is. They lost to, as I mentioned, Brogdon-less, Sabonis-less, half-turner-less Pacers team. They still can't do a damn thing without Joel Embiid on the court. Al Horford looks three steps slow coming off the bench. Uh, Moving Simmons to power forward makes a lot of sense, as we've discussed in previous episodes. However, moving Simmons to power forward does not 
take Ben Simmons off the court. You're still in a situation where Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid are on the court at the same time. And I'm just, I know it's only three seasons in, but I'm like so frustrated with this duo, even though I'm not a Sixers fan, that I'm just ready to blow it up. And like, these guys cannot play together. And we're like, it's just, we're at a point, at, at what point do we just accept that this is who they are? You know, we're not talking about game 16 of the season here. We're not talking about year one together. Like this, these same things keep happening. They turned the ball over 21 times last night compared to 20 assists. How long have we been talking in the Brett Brown era about turnovers being this team's undue? Like, it just seems like no matter, no matter what pieces change around Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, and there's been a lot of them, the core issues with this team still remain. And am I reading too much into the first game of this bubble experience? Maybe, but I'd also argue it's still game 66 at the same season and the same issues crept up. And like, you know what? In the five minutes that there's... Well, yes and no. Well, the five minutes that their starting lineup played together, I was going to say, the offense actually did look good and the numbers were great offensively. So there is hope to be found there that, okay, maybe there's something there. They can bottle that up. But like, that lineup is not going to play 48 minutes together. I don't know, man. It's just if... If Ben Simmons moving to power forward and Shake Milton being inserted into the lineup is the answer to your prayers, I think, I think you got some bigger problems. Yeah, I was gonna say like I don't necessarily see this as like same old problems plaguing this team because I think for the most part their offense was fine, and I mean especially like Embiid going up against a team where look I have a ton of respect for Miles Turner as a defensive player. I think he's a fantastic rim protector, but. He's not exactly an ideal post defender, especially for a guy with the kind of heft that Joel Embiid has because he's rather skinny and Embiid can essentially just put him in the basket as he did last night on his way to 41 points and 21 rebounds. So I don't know, like, it's not like every game the Sixers are going to just have the ability to play through Embiid in the post the way that they did in this game. But the offense wasn't the issue for them in this game. Like, their defense totally fell apart. And Ben Simmons who's had like an all-NBA caliber defensive season, got roasted by TJ Warren. I think on possessions guarded by Simmons, Warren was 9 for 10 from the field and 5 for 5 from 3. So I don't even really know what to say about that because I still do believe in the Sixers, like their defensive ceiling. That wasn't at all apparent last night. And I think, you know, one of the things that I was sort of looking forward to seeing, like Al Horford talked about how great he felt physically and he was like he was laboring during the regular season and this time off has done him so well he feels better than he has all year so I was like man if Al Horford is like the Al Horford that he was you know the last few years in Boston then that's a total game changer for Philly and like you said I, I thought he looked pretty sluggish last night it was a minus 26 and 23 minutes of action so yeah I mean I think there's still a chance like their schedule is pretty cakey the rest of the way. Um, but I got, how much cake you're – like the Pacers, I get it. I respect them as a good team that continues to overcome adversity. But like playing that the Pacers team that went out there last night, especially with Miles Turner in foul trouble, is kind of a cakey matchup. <laughs> right. I know. I think the, the point that I was trying to make is like they, they have a game against the Raptors, but I don't think there are any other like measuring stick games on their schedule in the seeding stage. So I actually think – it's going to be really difficult to get the measure of this team before the playoffs because like, even if they basically go six and one the rest of the way, like I'm not necessarily going to trust that. What if they go um, one and when, six? You know, when it comes to, 
Well, then maybe that <laughs> that will be uh, more of an indicator of where this team is at. I don't think that's going to happen. Like, I still, I still think the Sixers are a good team. I'm rapidly losing faith in them being like a legitimate contender. And I actually like, I, I haven't thought for a while that they were a real threat to Milwaukee. Like I thought maybe they had a, like an outside chance of getting out of the East if they just hit their absolute ceiling, peaked at the right time, just because of that defensive upside that they have. But I don't know, man. Obviously not a great start for them in these games. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. I I think uh, we should talk about the Lakers a bit. They've played two games. And I think there's some interesting stuff to take away from both of those games. Uh, do you want to start with their game against the Raps last night? Because this was basically what you have predicted is going to be a finals preview. So what did you see from both these teams in that finals preview? And did, did you have any sweeping takeaways? Did it change? I mean, you said the Lakers were going to win that finals matchup. Has this changed your opinion about that at all? No, look, I still think... I still think, you know, having LeBron um, in a playoff series is going to be quite the equalizer. And I, I think, as we all know, even though, you know, LeBron has been great during the regular season, I, we've seen this before that when he wants to dial it up in the playoffs, it's a different animal. And I think a Lakers team with LeBron and Anthony Davis locked in on basically every possession, things will go differently. Having said that, I think how passive Anthony Davis was and the way the Raptors, um, neutralized him and honestly not neutralized LeBron but definitely limited his impact yesterday I'm not saying they can do that in a playoff series I don't think they can but what I do think the Raptors have shown us with their very adaptable defense over the course of the year is that the one thing this team can do is limit stars right and and limit guys who want the ball and and, you know whose impact is dependent on having the ball in their hands and impacting the game that way and I think what that means is that if you play the Raptors in a playoff series, your your supporting cast better step up. They better show up because the Raptors, again, I'm not saying they're going to completely limit LeBron James in a playoff setting. They won't. But will they, you know, mitigate his impact by even 5% compared to what another team and, and, and need and force the Lakers to rely on other guys more than other teams? Yeah, their defense is that good. And it's proven to be that good, especially against stars this season because of the game plans they come up with. And so I think, you know, if there is a concerning thing for the Lakers in this matchup, other than just the Raptors defense and their length and their swarming, you know, tendencies, it's that we already talked about the lack of depth now on this team as, you know, they going into the bubble and they've got some guys, they're relying on some guys that I'm not as confident in, in if they need them in increased roles and I think against a, t- a defense like the Raptors that really could come back to bite them. You know, now is it going to be the difference why they lose, say, to the Raptors in a final series? Maybe not. But, you know, if it's the difference between, 
you know, taking it in game six and maybe then needing a game seven when anything can happen. Like those, those things add up over the course of a series. And, and so that would be my concern if I'm the Lakers and I match up with the Raptors. It's like that ball is going to find supporting cast members hands and can they step up? And also can Anthony Davis assert himself more in this matchup? Because we've seen now twice against the Raptors where some combination of Pascal Siakam and in his first matchup is even Chris Boucher and some of the other Raptors bigs and some of that swarming defense really limit Anthony Davis's ability to impact the game. And it seemed to affect him. Like he, he just kind of lost, you know, obviously with LeBron, that's not going to happen. He's not going to lose his will to try to impact the game. But with Anthony Davis, it really does seem to affect his, his even willingness to assert himself. And that's a concern in this matchup. I think one thing that the Raptors defense is, I mean, there are a ton of things the Raptors defense is really good at, but what they really do is I think they force opponents to not only reorient their game plan, but reorient their entire shot profile. And this is like a really interesting trend that I've noticed, like kind of starting last year when the Bucks sort of pioneered this new way of playing defense. And it's something I think the Raptors have, they, the Raptors do it differently, but the overall approach I think has been the same, which is that they want to limit shots at the rim at any cost. So the Lakers are this interior oriented team that has made its bones this season by just scoring at the basket. And, you know, in this game, they took 13 fewer paint shots than they take on average. And you look at their shot profile and it's like, okay, they, they got up 43s, which I think for a while we were sort of trained to think like giving up threes is bad. That's not good defensive practice. And of course, like, like I don't think the Lakers are going to shoot 10 for 40 from three every game. Like Danny Green went 0 for 6 and missed some pretty clean looks. Danny Green pitched a shutout in two games against the Raptors this year. It's insane. He's a sleeper agent. (laughs) We can agree. But, but yeah, I think, you know, for one thing, the Raptors are really good at forcing the ball into the hands of lesser shooters. And it's like, you just watch Kyle Lowry is spending a couple possessions guarding Markeith Morris. And he is just gumming up every single Lakers driving lane because he's sliding over. He's either taking a charge or he's like forcing a kick out. And the ball is getting kicked out to like role players who are okay shooters. But like the Lakers success is not predicated on three point shooting. They actually have one of the lowest three point attempt rates in the league. So them taking 43s against the Raptors is actually just like them being outside of their comfort zone. And even if a lot of those looks were pretty clean, that's not how they're used to playing. And the fact that LeBron got basically nothing easy at the rim, Anthony Davis could not find his way inside at all. And AD also like has operated out of the post so often this season. And you just can't really post up on the Raptors, not just because they have so many sturdily built post defenders, but because... They will double team you like before you've even caught the ball. And we've seen them employ that strategy against Joel Embiid, holding him to zero points earlier this season. They did the exact same thing to Anthony Davis. He could not get comfortable in the post. He was getting swarmed all night. And the Raptors are just so good at helping and recovering. They put themselves in rotation a lot, which could be damaging for a lot of teams. I mean, like watch the Chicago Bulls play this season and you'll see why that's not just like a fail safe. But the Raptors are on a string when they rotate. They are so smart. They communicate so well. And, you know, I I think that has an impact where even if they're giving up a lot of threes and specifically a lot of corner threes, those shots always sort of feel rushed. They don't feel like they're coming inside the normal flow of an opponent's typical offense. And 
I do think there are going to be games where that comes back to bite them, where the opposing team gets hot. Um, like I think, you know, a, a game against the Rockets earlier this season stands out to me as like they were just sending those ridiculous blitzes at Harden like at half yeah. court all game and the Rockets hit like 22 threes. Ben McLemore killed them. Um, ben McLemore hit eight threes and it's like, yeah, you know, sometimes that's going to blow up in your face and you're going to lose because the opposing team gets hot. But I think what we've seen over the course of a long season is that the ability to essentially force an opponent to kind of scrap their offensive game plan and come up with something new can be really, really effective. And I think they are just, outside of the Bucks. they are probably the best interior defense in the league. And they did a magnificent job of keeping the Lakers out of the paint all night. Also, so um, you know, I, I mentioned, I think on last week's episode, that with Gasol on the court, their defensive rating was actually even better than the Bucks team defensive rating. I know the Bucks, if you look at just with Giannis on the court, it's still better. But impressive nonetheless. Uh you know what the Lakers' offensive rating with Marc Gasol on the court was last night? I think it was 60.8. 60.8. Um, and and Mark, you know, you want to talk about this it just looking like a continuation of the season. Skinny Mark didn't look much different on offense. He still looked a little hesitant to score. Uh, didn't make the biggest op- impact on the offensive end, but man, was he good defensively and just really solid. And before we finish the wrap up any talk of this game of the Raptors, we have to mention Kyle Lowry, or as you tweeted his real name last night, Kyle motherfucking Lowry, because my God, this it, like all due respect to the, like the point God moniker being bestowed upon Chris Paul. He deserves it. But you know, we've talked for years about how similar, like aesthetically watching Chris Paul and Kyle Lowry has become. I, I'm just ready to call Kyle Lowry like a point God at this point. This guy manages an NBA game. Like few other point guards, few other players I have ever watched. He's just absurd. You know, you look at last night in a game with LeBron James, Anthony Davis, and Pascal Siakam on the court. Kyle Lowry was the best player on the court, and it was not close. He finished with 33 points, a career-high 14 rebounds, okay? Four more rebounds than anyone else in that game, which, by the way, came against a top-five rebound rate team in the Lakers. He had six assists. He took a charge, but also was just phenomenal as a help defender and essentially as a rim protector in that game, timing his help defense perfectly. On the offensive end, he continued to do little things like, you know, screen for Siakam, which continues to be money for the Raptors when they have Lowry screen for a big, particularly Siakam. Just in every conceivable way, he dominated this game. Whether you want to look at, you know, if you're the type of fan that wants traditional production laid out for you, he was the best player on the court. If you're the ty- type of basketball geek that wants to look at the the minutia between the lines, he impacted the game in a plethora of ways. Like that, he just dominated, and it was uh, it was incredible to watch. He's now averaging twenty points, seven point six assists, and five rebounds on fifty nine percent true shooting this season, and remains the most valuable overall player on a team playing at a 59 win pace again like what else is there to say about this guy at age 34 in season number 14 uh he's a hall of famer i mean that's that's the only thing left to say i I think if that was in any way in doubt before this season he has absolutely put those doubts to rest and i think the thing that has really surprised me and impressed me the most this season is just like his ability to get downhill 
Because that, that, like, that was something that really seemed to be trending in the wrong direction the last couple of seasons. Even like as he continued to be extremely effective, a brilliant game manager, a great off-the-dribble shooter, a, a terrific passer. like All the stuff that we've come to know and love about Kyle Lowry was still there. But he was really having trouble kind of turning the corner, getting to the rim. Um, his free throw rate had declined significantly. And suddenly it's like this year, he has doubled his free throw rate. He is getting to the rim with way more frequency than he has the last couple of years. And he just looks like so much quicker. Just to piggyback off that quickly, sorry to interrupt, but I'm pretty sure his free throw attempts last night were the most he's had in a game in three years. Yeah, what do you have, 15 free throw attempts? So it's just like, it it, it had really seemed like over the the previous couple of years, like his offensive game had become limited to kind of his... His work in the pick and roll, which, you know, is really underrated and understated, but like as a pocket passer in the pick and roll and as like a, a three point shooter, whether it's off the dribble or off of his excellent relocation and movement off of the ball. But this stuff like him just getting downhill and being able to get to the free throw line and, and score at the rim is something we haven't seen from him. I don't think since like 2016, 17. And I thought that was epitomized perfectly by, you know, there was one play where Anthony Davis switches on to him in the third quarter of that game last night. And I think it was Mark Jones on the ESPN broadcast. As soon as that switch happened, he's like, well, Anthony Davis can hang with guards. And Kyle Lowry immediately dusts Anthony Davis off the dribble, puts in a reverse layup, and Doris Burke is like, not that guard. Yeah, it was it <laughs> was television I, perfection, to be honest. And I, I just think that's crazy for Kyle Lowry at age 34 it, in his 14th season to suddenly have like become once again one of the league's premier downhill guards when it seemed like that just wasn't going to be part of his game anymore. Um, I do want to talk a little bit more about the Lakers, though, because I don't think that they're getting out of the West, even though they beat the Clippers in that game. I mean, I thought the the absences of Harrell and Lou Williams were really noticeable in that game. Like the Clippers bench got shellacked and on like they they played a long stretch without either a pg or Kawhi on the floor which is just not going to happen in the playoffs and that was when the lakers made up so much ground but i do think there was some really interesting things to take away from that game and from that matchup uh one of them is something like we've talked about before but it's just the fact that the clippers don't really have a good answer for anthony davis i kind of think come playoff time maybe it'll be Kawhi. I know, like, they've tried out so many of their bigs on him. Like, they've, you know, Jermichael Green seems to be their their favorite option on him right now. But, like, in that game, they tried Patrick Patterson. They tried Zubach. I I mean, Harrell will get a look, surely, when he's back. But Kawhi might be their best option, honestly. Just because he he at least is, like, not going to get burned by AD's face-up game. He's long enough, I think, to actually, like, contest AD's shot. And strong enough to like not let him get deep post position. And if that leaves Paul George on LeBron, I don't think that's a terrible outcome for the Clippers. But one thing I do, I wrote about LeBron's defense in that game, which I thought was unbelievable. It's some of the best defense that I've seen him play, honestly, since like the 2016 championship run with the Cavs. And that game ceiling possession when he essentially stopped Kawhi Leonard and Paul George on the same possession to seal the game, that that was literally the definition of king shit. Like, yeah. And, and like, I mean, his one-on-one defense in that game was excellent, but, like, his help defense was unbelievable. And, like, that was not really the case in the, in the game against the Raptors. I thought his one-on-one defense against the Raps was still pretty solid, but he was not the same off-the-ball force that he was in that game against the Clippers. But it did make me think of something, which is that in, 
in a series between those two teams, which I think we both think is almost certainly going to be the Western Conference final, I think it might fall on AD to essentially be the primary offensive weapon for the Lakers and to carry the bulk of the scoring load, while LeBron essentially focuses more on the defensive end of the floor. Because like, if you look at the way that the Clippers team is constructed, they have so much perimeter defensive talent. Like They actually have the goods to make it really difficult for LeBron uh, to get into his normal offensive rhythm, but they don't have the same kind of personnel up front when it comes to slowing down AD. And so it may be that the Lakers in that series have to kind of run more of their offense through AD, allow LeBron to uh, conserve a little bit of energy to really put in the kind of defensive performance that we saw him put in in that first game. And I think that is essentially the Lakers' blueprint to winning that series because they, like, they need LeBron to be that good defensively in order to beat the Clippers. I really believe that. And I, I don't know that he can necessarily do that over the course of uh, you know, a best of seven. Especially because, man, like Paul George in his first couple of games has looked ridiculously good. So I think once the Clippers are back in a hole again, they're still going to be the team to beat out West. But I did think that was an interesting showing, an encouraging showing for LeBron and the Lakers in that game. And I think that dynamic between him and AD, kind of flip-flopping roles, defense and offense in that matchup, is something I would keep an eye on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, I think particularly with, LeBron in general, even though he obviously dialed it up for that game. But, you know, as we've seen with Kawhi in the past too, when it comes to those guys, not that I want to dismiss anything they've done in the regular season, but the the different level those two guys in particular can take it to come the postseason, I think will change a lot about the dynamics of this matchup as well. Anywhere else you want to, you want to touch on or bounce around to before we leave? I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a couple interesting things. I mean, um, I threw it in my Friday night um, takeaways, but like the Mavs just being completely unable to close out games. They're now two and 12 in games decided by one possession or overtime. They blew that 302 point thriller to the Rockets on Friday night. They had it according to unpredictable. They had a 99.5% chance to win the game with 45 seconds left. They of course did not. And, and it's just kind of crazy. Like they've got literally the most efficient offense of all time. And yet just this season, the second worst offense in crunch time. And, and I don't know, like I don't I don't know how much of it is just a little bit of misfortune and bad luck and a small sample size, and how much of it is just them completely crapped in the bed. Like eyeball test, it really does seem like they stop moving um, in crunch time, and and just like they depend on Doncic isolations enough already, but it seems like they really kind of leave him on an island to work wonders by himself in those crunch time minutes. And I don't know what it is, like you know Rick Carlisle is a wizard. Like why? I don't think he's instructing them to just stand around, you know, in the last few minutes of close games. And again, whether it's bad luck, whether it's because of a, a lack of off-ball movement and spacing, whatever the case may be, Doncic himself is now 0 for 10 on shots to tie or go ahead in uh, in crunch time, I believe, this season or in the final minute of crunch time. So there's a lot to unpack there. And again, I, maybe some of it is just completely bad luck in a small sample size, but I think that sample size is getting big enough now where there's clearly some patterns to be found. Yeah. I don't know that I've like watched enough Mavs crunch time possessions to say what specifically is afflicting them. But the fact that Doncic is O of 10, like you said, on shots to tie or take the lead, I think in the last minute or the last two minutes of regulation or overtime this season, that feels a little bit fluky to me. 
like I, I like Doncic has a tendency to take some bad shots, some real like high degree of difficulty shots, and to revert to hero ball for sure. But I also think that he's a really capable shot maker, and I, I don't know that that is necessarily going to be predictive for them. I do think maybe you know the fact that Porzingis isn't really a post up threat at all might have something to do with it because I I, do, I think like sometimes late in games you do sometimes just need to be able to like take advantage of a size mismatch somewhere. And if like a team is willing to say, switch the Doncic Porzingis pick and roll, I don't think you can just rely on Porzingis to back a guy down and put the ball in the bucket. Like so often when he gets that mismatch, he's just looking to shoot over a guy and like take a turnaround. You know, he he shoots something like 44, 45% from two point range. So it's certainly not an especially reliable weapon. I think the Mavs are really good. I think I think they're going to get blasted by the Clippers in the first round this year, and it'll be a good learning experience for them. But I, I'm not like uh, yeah, like I don't think that team really has anything to worry about in the big picture because they're still so far ahead of schedule to me that uh, ultimately this stuff is going to sort itself out over time. Um, I, I don't know. I th- I thought I, I watched that Jazz Thunder game yesterday, which man, the Thunder looked yeah. good. Like, the Jazz don't. They look crisp. <laughs> they look sharp. Chris Paul was fantastic. Steven Adams looked great. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, this is something we've talked about in the past where you know, Steven Adams, the last few years, I think, has looked not physically right come playoff time. And I, I think he looks to me like one of the biggest beneficiaries of this time off because he was moving really, really well last night. And if they have him fully healthy for the playoffs, I think that's actually a pretty big game changer for them. As much as we focus on their guard rotation – as what's driven their success this year. Uh, if Steven Adams is at a hundred percent, that's huge. And that to me just gives them like, like their top six is up there among the best in the league, honestly. And so when they can shorten their bench come playoff time, I think they're going to be really dangerous and a really tough out. And yeah, on the other end of that, the jazz, I mean, they squeak out that win over the Pelicans because as I mentioned before, they were just able to sort of find seams in that defense in the second half and score at the rim at will, they were not at all able to do that against the Thunder. And I think, you know, conceptually, without Bogdanovich, that team just doesn't really work. Because if you think about what they did in the offseason is like they, they exchanged defense for offense. You know, they let go of Derek Favor so that they could get Bogdanovich, essentially downsize at the four, spread the floor a little bit better. And Bogdanovich was incredible for them this year. And like there is a reason I think that they dominated teams when he was on the floor and got outscored when he was on the bench. And that's the, you know, without him out there, they, I just don't think they have enough spot up threats. The floor gets too gummed up. Their half court offense just can't really function. And then they've still made the sacrifice defensively. So they can't really win games at the defensive end the way that they used to be able to as good as Rudy Gobert continues to be. And their bench, which was already super thin, and like they did not have a lot of success with their bench or transitional lineups this year, is just stretched that much thinner because they have to fill Bogdanovich's spot in the rotation. So to me, I think against teams that have solid interior defenses, the way the Thunder do, they're going to be really hard-pressed to score. Yeah, I don't think they'll be able to. And I think that's the reason I don't really give them much of a shot of even winning a playoff series anymore. And on the flip side to that, yeah, wholeheartedly agree with everything you said about the Thunder. I 
I've been saying for a while, man, I think that um, I think they're capable of beating any non LA team in a playoffs in, in the West playoffs. And I'm not saying they will, they might lose in five in the first round and they won't be favored most likely, but they can beat them. Like they're good enough. They we're far beyond the point of this being some fluke or like a good regular season team. No, like that their top six, as you mentioned, and their, their best five, especially is really, really, really good. And if Steven Adams is healthy and, you know, kind of in peak conditioning at the right time, which is not usually the case for him, but might be this year because of the shutdown, like that really changes things. And, you know, the reason that that quote unquote small lineup with all that length in the backcourt can work, a lot of it is because he mitigates some of that, the size deficiencies just by being there. And if he's healthy and ready to rock come the playoffs, yeah, man, I, I think they can beat any non LA West team. And I, I'm, it's going to be fun watching them because they really are a really fun team to watch. They seem to just genuinely enjoy playing together. And um, I, you can say the opposite for the jazz, honestly. And, and maybe that's reading too much into like on court body language or whatever, but it's kind of, I'm not even saying that related to the Mitchell Gobert COVID stuff. I'm, I'm saying that's seemed like the case all season. Yeah. There's something that's just been off about that team all year. Right. And I do think, you know, without Bogdanovich, Sort of this whole year, I've kind of felt like three through seven in the West, you could kind of order those teams any way that you want. I don't think there's a ton to separate them. I think there's a clear drop off between the top two and the next five. But I think now I would put the Jazz pretty firmly at seven in that group. And three through six, I think, are all pretty bunched up and any of those teams could beat any of them, but I, I don't have much faith in the Jazz winning a first round series. And I don't know if they're still slated like to, to, play OKC in round one. I know they were like heading into the bubble, but OKC is a bad matchup for them, I think, because Gobert's rim protection, it just doesn't, it doesn't have as much impact against a team like the Thunder, where I feel like they get so much of their offense from the mid-range. You know, Gobert can drop back as much as he wants, but like Chris Paul's still going to get off that elbow jumper. And I mean, Shea Gilgis-Alexander had a couple of drives where he just finished around Gobert as if he wasn't even there. And, and I also think it's like, you know, Steven Adams is the kind of guy who, with his screening and his offensive rebounding, can also mitigate some of what Gobert does really well. So I, I think that would be a really nice matchup for the Thunder and one that I would definitely expect them to win. But I agree with you. I think whether or not they'd be favored, I guess you can quibble with. But like, I at this point kind of expect them to win a first round series. Yep, they're that good. You got any other opening weekend thoughts or um i know we we just wanted to hit quickly on the spurs and i think maybe we should just because we really haven't talked about the spurs at all and i still don't consider them a huge threat to swipe that eight seed they did leapfrog two teams with the win right but again that's what happens when you know you you've played one game and uh it was you know one of the easier games on the spurs schedule but it's a big one for them especially you know they're playing the kings who is one of the teams that they're in that kind of five team pile up with chasing that last playoff spot. So an important win for them. Now stay. Yeah. And those games like where, where teams kind of have a chance to take their destiny into their own hands. are going to be super interesting. I mean, there's two games between the Kings and Pelicans and obviously the, the Blazers Grizzlies game was huge for Portland, pulling that out and putting themselves sort of in pole position early to get into that play in situation. But I thought that was, that Spurs game was a pretty interesting look at their new starting lineup. And specifically Derek White, who I had like such high hopes for this season after the year he put together last year when I'm pretty sure I put him on one of my all-defensive teams. 
I was so impressed. And with he the had way that he great defended. playoff series too. Well, he had that great playoff game, right? Against uh, Denver, the, the, the Nuggets kind of neutralized him in the last couple of games of that series. But like, yeah, he had one game where he absolutely eviscerated the Nuggets, and yeah, he he's started to like do a little bit more stuff with the ball in his hands, and like has has proven to be a pretty competent shooter, but. The Spurs went with Bryn Forbes in the starting lineup this year because I think they needed his shooting. They just didn't really have it elsewhere. But finally in this game, we see the the DeJounte Murray, Derek White backcourt that I think we were really excited about coming into this year that we just didn't see all that much of because Derek White just like kind of didn't play all that much. So to see him go off for like 25 points, somehow take five charges, I mean, that's insane. But I, I think he continues to be a really... Uh, impactful defender and if he can continue to come around at the offensive end then he'll be the kind of player that I sort of expected him to be after the year that he had last year yeah I do think it's very like 2020 Spurs like though that um they can start this small lineup with with four guards essentially and a big and still not be able to shoot like if you look at the personnel like how many teams are starting uh four quote-unquote out lineups that actually aren't out because they can't shoot. You know, that's, that's still kind of four in right. lineups. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. The only other thing I'd add is that uh, the Spurs are a good example of why the NBA should have done a one to 16 playoff format this year, because with no travel needed in the bubble, there's really no reason to break it up by East and West anymore. And if, you know, I think you even tweeted it Friday night, like when watching that Portland Memphis game, but you know, one of those teams is going to miss the playoffs. Technically, potentially both could, depending on how things break. Yeah. And yet, you know, we're watching Chris Kioza play Milwaukee on the other bracket. And like one of Brooklyn or Washington is guaranteed to get in. I think they still could have done something creative where they did play-ins. They could have done two play-ins still where like you could have said if the 18th and 17th seeds are within a certain amount of games, they could play 16th and 15th uh, to get in. And you would have had maybe the best playoff race ever, to be honest. If you look at that bunch of teams, you know, the Nets and Magic still would have had a shot to get in. They just would have had to fend off legitimate teams to do it. The Wizards would really be the only team out of the race. It, it just would have been perfect. You know, as I mentioned, you would have had a chance for a, a Lakers-Clippers finals. I'm not saying they should have gone to that permanently, but for this one year when they were already thinking outside of the box anyway and there's no travel involved, I just think they really missed a chance to create a much, much, much more exciting playoff race that rewards better teams as opposed to eventually having to watch Chris Kioza jack up shots against the Bucks. That's yeah, I mean, yeah. No, it's really unfortunate. I mean, even the Suns, man, like I would way rather watch the Suns take on the Bucks. Not that it's really going to matter. I think the Bucks would stomp them too, but like that's still a competent team whereas like the Nets are obviously a team of mostly G-leaguers at this point. Yeah. And I think the same goes for the Wizards. So it's too bad they couldn't find a way to kind of reorganize the format a little bit. And I understand the hesitance to change protocol like that midway through a season and to feel like maybe that changes the legitimacy of this season in a way because um you know they're already dealing with some potential asterisk talk so to change how the playoff format works would maybe just feed into that more and feed into the fact that well like this is not any other nba season but like also this is not any other nba season so i don't think that's i don't think it would have been an issue necessarily to lean into that especially just like given the dire state of the bottom of the Eastern conference playoff bracket. But to that point, I'll just finish by saying I, I really enjoyed watching the Blazers. I really enjoyed watching Yusuf Nurkic playing again. And I, it was so nice to see him playing as well as he played in that game after 
his extended layoff after that horrific leg injury that he suffered. He came back and looks like he hasn't missed a beat, honestly. He was moving really well. Uh, he was getting off of the floor, like blocked six shots, including a couple three-pointers. His passing continued to be on point. He was scoring out of the post. And his defense all around, I thought, was just excellent. So really encouraging sign for him and the Blazers both. And even if they don't make the playoffs this year, I just think looking forward, the notion of him just being back and essentially being something close to the player he was before he got injured has to be really encouraging for them. Yep, and just a positive development overall. So yeah, I think that's that's a pretty good uh, place to cap it. Uh, that's our recap of the first few days of NBA games. We will obviously continue to watch all of this with great interest, and we'll be back sometime in the very near future to recap some more action. So for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Talk to you all soon.